Well, hey, folks, and welcome back to the 747 Conversations podcast. It's your host, Chris Shembra, broadcasting live from beautiful and hot New York City. Uh, honored for this podcast today, a, a man I've deeply respected for a while and partnerships we've done so often, Mr. Chris Barbin, the, uh, the grazing serial entrepreneur. Honored to have him today, uh, the former co-founder and CEO of the wild cloud services startup Aperio, which sold to Wipro in 2016 for $550 million. Now on uh, as a venture partner at GGV Capital and built a restaurant with his wife, a, a brewery with his uh, his nephew, and a tequila company with his best friend. A man who's done so much in culture development and talent development. It's it's an honor to have you on the podcast today, Chris. Well, it's an honor to be here. Really appreciate you having me. We've done uh, some pretty cool things with your tequila company over the last couple months, and, and tonight is, is going to be an amazing night. In this period of grazing... As you're trying to figure out the legacy that you're leaving on this world between kids and relationships and family and companies, the simple question I have to start you off with today is, if you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, or just have never thought to give any credit or thanks to, whether it's someone you've never met before or someone you've known your entire life, who would that be? You know, that's a great question, and I'm glad uh, you sprung it on me like that. I want to go with my mom, and I'll say that, and maybe others have said their parents in the past. My dad gets a lot of credit, and uh, he passed 19 years ago. My mom, still alive, has you know pretty advanced Alzheimer's right now, and it's pretty sad to see the states she's in, but she is happy, which is great. But I would say my mom. I mean, she did a lot for us as a, uh, you know, as a leader of our family. But our dad tend to, you know, tended to get a lot of the credit. And um, so I'm going to go with my mom. And so when you talk about your dad getting the credit in the family, but identifying your mother as a leader, there's obviously different types of leaders we can have. You can be the visionary. You can be the communicator. You can be the energizer. You know, what, what makes her a good leader? I mean, I think she was the grinder. <laughs> she, you know, five kids in our family. Um, so I was the youngest of five. And a lot of the family members today, you know, we're very, we're very close as a family still to this day. She made it all happen. My dad, um, you know, was the nine to five, worked for the te- New England telephone, grounded out that way. But she was making it all work for all five of us for all those years. Uh, you know, despite, you know, all of us really attaching, I think more probably emotionally to my dad. So, so when you mean attaching emotionally, you know, to your dad, you know, what, what did that look like? Um, you know, that, that you weren't connecting to her in that way. Um, you know, I think we saw less of him because he was out there getting it done for the family. And, um, you know, we would see him at nights and on the weekends, but, um, you know, so we saw more of her. Maybe we took advantage. Maybe we took that for granted uh, along the way. And um, you know, while we, I think we all still talk about my dad in such a, you know, re- we revered him so so much, and we're very proud of him and what he did for all of us. Again, I mean, back to your initial question, it's like, like 
that you wouldn't generally give credit to, we don't talk, talk about her as much. And she's still around, still alive. And my oldest sister is taking great care of her and has done, uh, you know, tremendous, you know, has given up a lot to do that. But, uh, yeah, I think it's the, the grind, the day in, the day out grinding that she did for all of us um, is what kind of pops into my mind when I hear that question. What's, what's that age difference between you and your oldest sister? Well, I always call her my old sister. She likes to hear oldest. Um, so she is, let's see, 15 years older than me. So she's wow. 62, 63. And so when when she was literally leaving the house to go off to college, you were just not even getting into grade school. That's right. So how is, how is your, you know, as, a, as a, the youngest of five, you know, how is your relationship with your mother different than, you know, someone leading the charge with their mother, you know, in, 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 in that pack? As it relates to my sister? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, my sister and I have a very, very tight relationship. And actually, like, her yearbook cover is actually her and I and the reflection that she's holding my hand. Um, and it's passing the torch to another generation. And I was just... Uh, you know, a, a young one. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, my sister is very much like my dad, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, but it is interesting to see now that she is, you know, taking care of my mom the way she is. It's a, that's, that's a special relationship as well. She's really sacrificing now in these later years as my mom has been battling this disease. It sounds like your sister has become the grinder in the family. Uh, that's well said. For the family. That's right. That's right. And what role have you taken on? When your sister stepped into that responsibility. Yeah, I mean, I think um, we've all taken on a, a support role to her in that she is on the front lines down in Florida, you know, you know, near my mom, less than a mile away in the, in the home that she's in. Um, and so we support whether that be economically or, you know, through visits, giving her time off, time away from supporting my mom or, or being there for my mom. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think that we do that's pretty unique is we do a, a monthly video call that where we all get together every single month on the, you know, as, as a five, they're the five kids and talk through everything that's going on and everyone kind of has their little questions and, you know, what, what their travel schedule is and how we're going to be there for her or not be there and try to support different decisions that have to be made hmm. or have to, you know, that are being made for her care and otherwise. Interesting. It's amazing what technology can do, huh? Yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a it's a tough phase. It's a very tough phase of life, obviously. Um, you know, as you kind of watch your parents age, and then to see the circle of life where you're giving back to them what they gave to you, and while you all have your own families and lives, and so that's uh, the sacrifices that you have to uh, power through to give back to someone who got you where you are is uh, those are those are tough trade offs especially as you're building businesses or building your own family. If your mother didn't have five kids or she didn't have any kids at all, what do you think she would have grown up to be? That's a good question. Um, I don't know, an air traffic controller? Because I feel like that's what she did for the five of us <laughs> over, over the years. Um, you know, some highly organized, so, you know, maybe some type of uh, – you know, executive assistant in some form or fashion, but, uh, you know, clearly being able to manage that level of chaos is, uh, is, is pretty cool. The, the, the ability, you know, to, to manage that chaos and, you know, 
be the air traffic controller. Um, you know, as, as a young kid, were you, were you watching these skills that she had and were you aligning yourself with these skills that she had or did you only realize her skills kind of way after you had, you had grown up? I'd say much later. Yeah. Much, much later. Um, you know, I it, admired how they, how my parents teamed up the way they did to manage all of it. And, uh, I think I recognized that, that it was, you know, there were respective roles and how they handled everything that they needed to handle. But, um, I think the, you know, we have three kids and, you know, we just hosted them and their friends. We had 12, 16 to 20 year olds oh, man. at our house in Wisconsin. And I just like, we were feeding them and coordinating. And I was, and that was a mini version of what my parents had to go through all the time and my mom managing all of that. And so, uh, yeah, I think it was, you know, when you reflect back to see what, uh, you know, what she had to do, what they had to do is pretty, pretty incredible. I mean, it's not a lot of families that have, you know, there, there are some, but five kid families now that are all two to three years apart. Hmm. That's a lot to take on. Hmm. What do you think she wanted, you know, for you when you were a kid, when she was managing all of that, fighting yeah. the chaos? And yeah. I think, I mean, generally speaking, I think that every parent wants the same thing. They want their child happy. And, um, you know, I think that you want a level of success and, um, you know, to have a polite child, you know, someone who holds the door for people or looks them in the eye or firm handshake. But I think in the end, it boils down to happiness. You just want your kid happy. Do you think she learned anything from you as a kid? Did she, did she learn anything from me? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, maybe she did. I mean, as the youngest of five, um, gosh, she was probably pretty tired by the time I came around. But uh, I mean, hopefully she did. Hopefully she did. I mean, we all, all five of us, have very different. Um, you know, we're similar in some ways, but you know, our, our careers are highly different. You know, how we live our lives is very different. Uh, so hopefully she picked up something from me. I was probably the the most traveled. So maybe her, uh, you know, even then, I mean, now you've got 3 million miles on United, (laughs) right? But you were, what do you mean? You were the most traveled then? Yeah. I went away for school. Gotcha. Um, I studied international, studied abroad. Um, you know, I always was. And, and maybe it's because I just saw my older siblings, you know, pretty close to home. And I watched that. I was like, I get, I want to get out of here. I want to go further, faster. And so maybe that would be one, you know, unique element. Interesting. So when you left the house, and here you were leaving the house 15 years after the first person left the house, who was the next grinder that you met in your life? Wow. Who was the next grinder? Um... Geez, it was probably, I mean, my first big corporate job was at an industrial distributor called Granger, uh, based out of Chicago. And um, the boss that kind of brought me in, and I, I met him on a running track, very, very random bump in. He just took a liking to me. I would run in the, at a gym every morning, and he was running, and occasionally we just talked here and there, but he learned a little bit about me and he took a bet on me. I mean, I didn't have any experience in this world and he took a bet on me and I watched him kind of build a pretty cool organization, a consulting organization within Granger. Uh, his name's Doug. And I would say he like just watching him, how he did what he did. Um, 
you know, at a relatively old school conservative company, he was doing something that was pretty different, pretty unique, pretty edgy. And he took a bet on me, which I, which I liked that he took a bet on somebody who had really no background in the space. He just really kind of bet on me as a person and was willing to kind of coach and mentor uh, me along the way. It sounds like he, uh, he was an entrepreneur, so he was building something from within. And you mentioned that he built a cool organization. Yeah. Is that culture-wise? Is that talent development-wise? Was that your first exposure to entrepreneurship and to talent development? Yeah, I would say it was. I mean, there that was... became your strong suit. Yeah. Later in life. Yeah. No, he he. Again, we had the backdrop of a four billion dollar company, and he was able to. When I say cool, he attracted cool and unique people. You know, not just the traditional people who put boxes on trucks or in warehouses. Um, he was creating service offerings that no one for the customers of Granger that no one had ever heard of or thought of. Uh, was encouraging the use of technology to provide those services, you know, and eventually became it became the catalyst for Granger.com. Hmm. So this is late '90s. E-commerce didn't exist, and Granger was a very traditional. Here's a big catalog, sell to the maintenance man, buy on page 922. Uh, they believed at the time people would never buy on the internet, especially those types of buyers. And now, you know, Grange is an $11 billion company doing about 60% of the revenue online. And this was, you know, one of the, one of the catalyst executives that uh, helped drive that vision. What would have happened if he took a risk on you and either you or that division failed? Um, I think the culture of Granger was such that it would be okay with that. It, you know, it was a, you know, family-based business, you know, David Granger still, still around today. Uh, I think, you know, they were encouraging a bet and, and, and bets on people and offerings and services, and we would have just been redeployed to do something else. You know, they were, they were attracting and retaining smart people. Um, so I don't think it would have been a, you're out, like, I made a bad call here. They would have just shifted probably to a different, uh, you know, different focus area be my guess. So you had a good time at Granger. Great time. Learned a lot. And you moved companies, uh, grew in the global services division of, uh, became SVP at, uh, your next company. Yeah. Web methods. Yeah. Web methods growing it from, uh, got five, uh, 10, 10 million, uh, 50 million to 10 billion. Yeah. We were, we were one of the fastest or, well, we went out just before the bubble burst. Yeah. Went public. And, um, you know, we were doing about 50 million of revenue and we were worth $10 billion. Jesus. Uh, it was a IPO. It was supposed to go out at 12, ended up going out at $35, went to $212 on the first day. Oh, whoa. Yeah. Eventually went to $336. I mean, it was a crazy meteoric rise, um, back in the dot com uh, days. But then the bubble burst. Then the bubble burst. And, you know, the company still was actually doing pretty well, but the, you know, the economics for people go, you go from being a, you know, on paper, 10, 20, $30 million person to, you know, maybe I'll get a million dollars out of this. Maybe I won't, maybe I'll get nothing. And so the, you know, the stock went up and down, but the company I believe had some of the best talent 
the talent that was that was attracted and retained and I worked with those some really great web methods alumni uh, across the tech industry still today yeah I mean you became a, a world economic forum tech pioneer you navigating that that dot-com era I mean that's that's stuff that legends are you know are made of and then you face a crash like that my question is how was your mom's reaction to now seeing her son go from 30 million on paper to maybe nothing going from on top of the world to what the fuck just happened? <laughs> right. How, how does mom help out that situation? Um, you know, I think she, you know, in that run uh, with that web methods run, I would say, um, one, she was, I think, just absorbing, like most people were, this whole shift in technology. Like, what does this even mean? It was a pretty non-traditional career. Uh, you know, my background, my college degree was in political science. She thought I was going to be a lawyer or be in politics. <laughs> and here I am in Silicon Valley, you know, with ones and zeros and bits and bytes and, you know, uh, code, which just she couldn't grok. No one in my family really could, I think, at the time. And so I don't think the the rise and fall of the economics even registered. It was more just um, what I think great parents do. And my mom did. It's just, you know, it's a level of stability and endorsement and cheering on uh, along the way. But I think it was at that point going through that from my parents' perspective was just a, what is this technology thing in general? Uh, doesn't you're actually really doing anything other than flying all all around? <laughs> <laughs> it was a, you know it was a newer newer field to them. Yeah, how do you explain technology to a five year old? Well, one of my or, or well, to a sixty year old. <laughs> yeah, well, one of my, my um, when we launched Aperio, you know, we launched Aperio to focus on cloud computing in two thousand five two thousand six. It's kind of 2009, 2010, where like Microsoft was getting big into the game. And I'll never forget, like there were computer, uh, I'm sorry, uh, advertisements on TV. And that's when my mom actually first put it together. She saw a cloud advertisement from Microsoft. And I'll never forget on the phone, on the call, she, she called me up and she said, Chris, isn't that what you invented? <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was years after we had already founded the company where she was like, oh, well, Microsoft's doing it. So it must be legit. But I think Chris invented that. Like, Mom, no, that's I appreciate you saying that, but <laughs> not quite. <laughs> Full ownership of the word cloud. Yeah, we invented the cloud at Imperial. I mean, folks, you heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> and Imperial became such a massive success. It was a fun run. A fun run. Fun when run. did you know it was? Uh, it was time to stop running. You know, we. Um, I would say we probably knew between a year and a half and two years before we sold, um, you know, 10 year run overall, you know, the, the years, the middle years were growing like crazy. I mean, we went from 3 million to 10 to 20 to 40 to 80. Those were, you know, the years. And so we were basically doubling all the time. Growth started to slow a little bit. Um, you know, margin compression was starting to happen in the space. Uh, the big buyers were buying up other people that looked like us. And so, you know, we were at a point where we had raised a fair bit of capital. The growth is starting to slow. Buyers are starting to go away. We knew it was only, there was only a certain universe of buyers. And so that kind of the intersection of that was the, um, you know, we, we probably knew, like I said, about 18 months in advance. 
So then started doing some market checks and, you know, wanted to make sure we went into a firm that had similar values and good integrity and high ethics. And um, fortunately, we found Wipro, which was, you know, they're really, really good people and super philanthropic organization. Azeem Premji is one of the, you know, probably the, you know, in the U.S., probably not very well known, but, you know, was the one of the first inter, um, international you know, entrepreneurs, you know, worth well north of $10 billion to uh, the Giving Pledge. And uh, he's, you know, just a spectacular man. And so to be able to join an organization like that is pretty cool. What kind of values did you learn from him? And, and your father had already passed away by the time you had sold your company. What did this man become in your life? You know, I never actually got close to Mr. Premji. I, I think, you know, that we're pros, a you know, 70 plus year old organization. His son is now the chairman, uh, Rashad Premji, who I did get relatively close to. And I think the learnings and um, the alignment is just in and around values. You know, it's a value driven organization that is, um, you know, service oriented, customer oriented. And so I think, you know, I, while I met Mr. Premji in the process, um, you know, and, and we clicked right away, I think, you know, what he instilled in his son and in the organization by way of corporate values, you know, was probably the biggest uh, intersecting point. What was one of the stories they told you about how Rashad's father came to a specific value that the company stood for? I'm not sure I would say there's a specific story. I think just the way they handled the process of the acquisition hmm. was telling, you know, we had other people courting us and the process wasn't as transparent. It wasn't as, um, smooth. I think you learn a lot about any deal you do as a entrepreneur or business person. You learn a lot about the other side in the deal, you know, when there can be tension and how that's handled. And I think the way they handled the process um, you know, one thing that was impressive to me is when they wanted to do the deal, they flew 17 executives to Indianapolis for a week. Like it wasn't come to Bangalore with your team and let's go through all the diligence and tell us all about your business and then grind you and all the details. They brought everybody to us and they sat in a conference room for days and, you know, we went out in the evenings and we got to know each other. And it, the, so the way they handled the process you know, and you have bankers and investors and board members all floating around on the outsides. But the connection that we had with their team and how they handled that was, I would say, the that was that was important to us. It, is that not that prevalent in venture capital? I I think there's. I mean, deals go down in so many different ways. Um, you know, we're both people based. You know, services based companies. And I think there's maybe a sensitivity to like the chemistry and the fit has to be there. Um, but you know, there's lots of deals that don't go down that way where, you know, it is a financial transaction and we come in over the top and here's how we're going to do it. Your term sheets at X. And then by the time you get to definitives, it's X minus Y. Uh, cause you grind down, you get the deal done, but this was just a, it was a smooth and healthy process where, you know, we felt the chemistry was strong. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So the grinding phase, of your life temporarily uh, signs over to Wipro. Yep. You take a step back and say, here comes family. You get yourself involved in 
breweries and tequila companies and restaurants and everything else and, and GGV as a venture partner as well. Um, but but now you take what you learn from Rashad and doing the deal the right way. And that helps you do the next deal in your life, which is uh, essentially dating a little family down in Mexico. Yep. And uh, co-founding a, a or founding a tequila company or co-founding a tequila company. Uh, how did you how did you find that family in Mexico to start that tequila company with, and what did that process look like to get to know them as human beings and as partners in that way? Yeah, no, great, great question. And I think the you know there's lots of stories. And, I mean, tequila is a hot it's a hot spirit right now and people know the story of, you know, Patron getting acquired and George Clooney, you know, selling for a billion dollars. And, um, but a lot of those brands that have been built up have been built up over or through a contract manufacturing, you know, let's go make this, you know, in mass and then market the crap out of it. And so we wanted to take a family based approach. You know, that's been something that's been important to me. Um, and we wanted to, and to the co-founders, to my wife. And so finding a great product is one thing, finding a family that really cares that you can have that same chemistry with that I described earlier is another. And, you know, over the course of a couple of years in meeting with and sitting down and drinking tequila, at different distilleries, we had narrowed in on wanting to have a, again, a small family an artisanal or a boutique um, that's similar to having a boutique vineyard, but it's a, you know, it's an agave plant or agave farm. I mean, you're a guy who's not only as a, as a serial entrepreneur and, and now as a coach in your own right, you're, you're helping people scale and you've scaled, you know, multi, multi-million dollar companies. What makes a man go from scale grinding mentality to go to the mom and pop shop let's go to the artisanal producer how do you make that switch yeah well i think there's there's two pieces of that one just personally wanted to um exercise different muscles so you know i think my career had been in business to business large enterprise technology this you know the, the examples <laughs> you're giving brewery tech uh, brewery tequila restaurant business to consumer, small business, um, non-technology. Technology can enable all of them, Yeah. but wanted to kind of go through a phase where seeing a whole different side of building a business. And I mean, I will tell you, like the restaurant we've set up in Wisconsin is orders of magnitude harder than what we did with Aperio. <laughs> <laughs> but all of these experiences, whether it be the tequila business that's scaling nicely, the brewery in Nashville, um, Southern Grist, you know, these are all adding up to, you know, what I hope is a platform to go do the next thing, you know, bigger and better. And so, um, that's, that's one piece, just that's my personal driver. Broadly speaking for in the tequila space, um, I believe people want and will value this kind of a product with this type of a story and these types of values much more so than just another contract manufactured product. I mean, it took you three years to date them. That's right. Tell me about that process. What did you need them to see in you? And what did you need to see in them in order to get a deal not driven by ones and zeros and bits and boops and clouds and shit, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but a mutual trust? What, did you, what, was, what was the tipping point that finally made you say, oh, we found them? 
Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, when you, you use the phrase already, mutual trust. Uh, mutual trust doesn't come through easily or quickly. And when you're crossing cultures like this, um, when you want to do a family-based deal, like it was very important to them that you know we meet their family, their extended family. Every time we would go down, we would be with their whole family. It wasn't just the dad and the mom or the son, one of the distillers. It, it was everyone. These These meals that we would have and these meetings – you know, there would be dozens of people and they're all family and extended family. They also insisted on visiting us multiple times in Chicago. And so we, you know, we brought them up to our home in Chicago in the middle of winter. Can you imagine the <laughs> shock going from Jalisco or outside of Guadalajara to Chicago? And never forget just their, the, you know, the, uh, the um, um, Leticia, who's the mom, just, I don't think Chicago's her thing. But <laughs> she was insistent. They were insistent on meeting us, meeting our kids, understanding who we were, because it is. It, in the end, it's a trust-based relationship, and that they've built their business that uh, we're a part of now over 19 years on largely handshakes. You know, in the in Silicon Valley, in the acquisition world, or M and A world, or venture world, everything's papered up. Um, nothing is papered up in this world, which is also a really interesting process to go through, where you know, we raised a lot of money, we bought, we sold, we did seven acquisitions. This is a, literally, you're taking your own capital that you just earned and laying it on the line for a lot of handshakes. And so there was, it was mutual trust that had to get built up and that doesn't happen fast. That yeah. happens over time. And you guys created a product that's really, there's nothing like it in the world. I mean, I, here I am, I've already drank, you know, for the last two months, three months. And what a unique uh, blend between a, a wine and a whiskey aged in French and American red oak wine barrels. I mean, how did you think to go that radical with it and, yeah. and, and find that population of buyers that you wanted to focus in on a yeah. hybrid of people? Yeah, no, I think we knew from the beginning, we wanted to open up people's uh, palates and minds to uh, a sipping tequila. That's why we have siptequila.com. Mm -hmm. Sipping tequila is the broader umbrella. Uh, to do that, you have to get away from the memories of Cuervo in college, <laughs> which <laughs> is a behavioral shift, the burn, the lime, the salt, the barf. <laughs> you got to peg the other way. And to do that, you go with an aged product that mm. looks and feels and smells more like a cognac, a whiskey, a bourbon. And so that's what we were searching for. And then we were searching for, you know, a family and a process where we could take that initial base product, if you will, and take it to the next level. So with some additional aging, our finishing barrels with, you know, different packaging with a different route to market. And so that was, I mean, I sometimes describe the product. It's a bit of a gateway drug to tequila because we over time want to expose other fine sipping tequilas. This one is so smooth and so different and so unique. It's so It gets good. you in because there's a huge population of tequila drinkers that have a certain mentality of what it is. You know, it's a shooter. It's going to burn. This is not that. No. <laughs> it's, it creeps up on you. That's for darn sure. <laughs> <laughs> We've had many people. They, it almost, I mean, the packaging is designed to look more like a wine bottle. Yeah. Because we're trying to cross market oh, yeah. drinkers and wine drinkers. We've seen many people drink it like a bottle of wine in a setting across three, four people. Yeah, and I did. So we love that. 
<laughs> we absolutely love that. With zero hangover, by the way. It's clean. Because it's pure. It's pure. Right? Most tequila companies put like 1% or so of like other shit in there, right? You can put, uh, I mean, the regulating body of tequila is a CRT. It's a regulatory uh, commission. And you could put up to 1% of something. Something. In, in pure tequila. Which most other people do, except yeah. you guys. Yeah. And you can, and, and many people actually, you can't call it a tequila, but they put, you know, you could put up to 49% of other things. That's called a mixed dough or an agave based spirit. Gotcha. You're seeing more of those. But that's where the hangovers come in. <laughs> that Those are, those are dangerous. So you so, want to have pure blue Weber agave tequila. That's pretty crazy. Not bad for a grazer. It's fun. What does the grazer mean? You know, to you, when when we first had our our introductory call and we're getting to know each other, and you're talking about this wonderful life chapter, and what is this chapter that you're on? It's an amazing run. Yeah. Well, I mean, the 25 years so far, you know, behind me in in my career, if you will, you know, half of which was shaped by Aperio, you know, largely all shaped in the kind of technology landscape, if you will, technology and consulting. Um, you know, this phase is a phase now where I'm fortunate enough based on our outcome that I get to dabble in a lot of little things. I get to see the kids off to college. Um, but while I dabble through those things, I know that I, I mean, I feel like I have another run in me and I want to go build something else. I don't know what that is yet. So I want to graze on a lot of things, whether that be through boards or advisory or consulting or building small companies to figure out what that is. Could it be tequila? Could be. Could it be beer? Could be. Could it be something else? Maybe. I don't know. But so you just want to meet a lot of good people along the way. You got it. Have some good conversations. Yep. That's pretty neat. Yeah, and learn. I mean, I think yeah. I think most people want kind of two things. You want you want to be around great people, and you want to be a lifelong learner. Hmm. And so that's you know for me that's what this phase is shaped by. Like I want to continue to be around people that give me energy. Um, I choose to shed those that suck energy away and, uh, I just want to learn. And that's, you know, the tequila business is a great example. I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated industry that has lots of regulations and complexities and laws and rules that, you know, we're soaking up a lot of this, Never mind the manufacturing process of tequila, but the industry itself is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And we have this, I think, recklessly naive approach that could be disruptive in many ways to the industry over the long haul. And that's, you know, that could be the thing that's next. What's something exciting you've learned recently? Hmm. Exciting. I've learned recently. I mean, I, I mean, right now I think the, um, Maybe I'll maybe I'll focus on the the venture world. You know, it, it's interesting being on the other side. We raised a lot of money at Aperio, and um, I thought there was a phase where, like, I want to be in that. I want to be the venture capital thing. I want to be the venture capital guy. That's cool. You get to talk to a lot of companies, invest very early. It's a very hard business. Um, there's a lot of money in venture. Differentiating and standing out is hard. Um, and then when you want to help your companies, generally great entrepreneurs don't want help. <laughs> so there's a paradox where you can fight really hard to get in the right deals. You're on their board. But the greatest entrepreneurs in the world 
like generally like they're running, they're running their play. So when you want to help them, they, you know, it'll be a very tactical ask. Like I need a new CMO can help me find one, not can help me redefine my marketing strategy. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a, I, I, the, the, my mental model of venture and then what I could do as a venture capitalist has shifted as I've gotten more and more involved in, in the GTV relationship. Maybe that's the learning. That's interesting. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, so navigating that between as a board member and the entrepreneur and making sure you're pushing in the right ways and helping in the right ways. But there's only a few tools you can use as a venture capitalist. You know, hire somebody, fire somebody, you know, buy a company, sell a company. You know, there's there's only so many tools in your arsenal. Interesting. Uh, and you're dealing with a lot of, you have a lot of companies in your portfolio. It's so funny, you know, to say, you know, how do you set yourself out? I mean, first of all, you, you think you have to fight with other people begging to give someone money. Yeah. <laughs> and how do you stick, how do you stick out? against another VC firm when the entrepreneur probably doesn't want your help in the first place. They just want your money Yeah, and to not for you not to speak up at a board meeting or something. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating paradox and, and there is so much capital out there yeah. and people are getting it at high valuations and, um, but yeah, the, the support you can, you have to stand out with the services you can offer and the types of relationships you have. And, you know, we introduced this concept at Aperio called BIR, Board Influenced Revenue. So we, I gamified our board. Gotcha. And I'm like, literally, how much pipeline did you generate and how many deals did you close in the quarter? And the first slide of every board meeting was the pictures of the board members, like how much pipeline and how much deal did they close? And then what would happen to the Jack Welch bottom 20% of your board? that didn't we, we we wouldn't change that <laughs> good in theory not gonna happen <laughs> especially when you have their capital <laughs> um, but it was it was a very healthy dynamic i mean uh, jim gets on our board he he right from the beginning uh from sequoia he said we we're gonna have a full contact board which i loved like we were very it was a very highly functional board but we just we hit it hard because that's what the board meetings were for but we did have that board influence revenue concept, which was a very tangible way of using your board. It's interesting. Um, and it was very helpful uh, for Have us. you taught that BIR to, yeah. All the time. Yeah. Like sample slide. I use it with yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs. Because in, in a sales cycle to give somebody capital, every firm says, oh, I can help you sell. And actually a lot of entrepreneurs now, what we're finding is they make you sell in the sales cycle. It's like, like literally, bring, then bring me a deal before the term sheet. <laughs> and so I think, I think entrepreneurs have gotten smarter about how to use their board. Wow. Um, and you know, there's functions being built up business development functions in venture capital firms to go support the deal cycles. And then you got to execute that long term as well. If your mother could teach a class to the founders that you now mentor and advise, what would you ever teach? Um, Maybe it's something around, you know, care and empathy. You know, one of the things that I, I've been thinking a lot about, and even in the, some of the smaller businesses we're, we're, I'm part of now, we're building, um, the, you know, care and empathy as a retention tool is, uh, I think, so important. But I think leaders and founders, you know, tend to get hardened 
you know, as businesses scale, mm-hmm. I think it's like, you know, people are still people. They're not widgets. <laughs> and I mean, I think that that teaching something on that, that it's okay to be vulnerable and open and talk about, uh, you know, a divorce, a death in the family, a sick kid, mental illness, like that as a, as a leadership trait or even a management trait doesn't have to be leadership is so, I think it's one of these areas that just is not talked about enough, taught enough. And it's hard. It's hard, but I would say that's probably, I would say, well, if you can go teach that to founders and leaders, that would be, that'd be money. The good news is emotional intelligence and empathy can be developed over time. The funny thing is emotional intelligence or EQ is actually the only thing directly linked to earning potential, not intellect or technical capabilities. So that's the good news. If your mom was sitting in this room here today, what would you say to her? Uh, love you. Wished I, uh, w- wished I recognized all you gave to me over the years that, uh, you know, I didn't necessarily call out. It's a good one. What's her name? Aileen. Aileen. Well, Chris, do you have any words in closing for our listeners? I would just say, um, yeah, care and empathy. I, uh, it's kind of my new, uh, I think we built a pretty strong organization that had that built in, but you know, in my grazing phase, I've learned and appreciated that more and more. And we'll certainly bake that into any future endeavors as well. I dig it. Well, Chris, thanks for being on the podcast Chris, thank today. You, uh, thanks for having me, man. What Appreciate a tr- it. What a tremendous conversation. And to all our listeners out there, you know, I, I hope you learned, you know, what I learned today about care, about empathy. This is a man who's, uh, you know, at, at the top of his game, a man who sold a company for a couple hundred million dollars, a, a man who led a couple thousand person teams. Um, when he's talking about, that at the end of the day, it's about mutual trust, it's about care, it's about empathy. Because people buy from people, not from companies. And you have to know, like, and trust the people that you want to do business with. And yes, maybe you're in a company that you have an asshole boss, or maybe you're in a company that you have to work with asshole clients, but misery is optional. Uh, You can do business the right way. Go to chrisbarbin.com to check out everything, the musings that he talks about and writes about, um, and please bring them into your organization to help out any way that he can check out sip tequila and compavated tequila and Southern grist and <laughs> a thousand other companies. Their links will be in the bio below, but it's been a true pleasure. And I'm so excited to support, um, you as a founder, you as a mentor, you as an advisor and, and, and you as a, a tequila enthusiast, because, uh, we're about to go have some good te- tequila together. Uh, So, folks, I hope you all are having a phenomenal day on Earth. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, share it with your friends. Have a phenomenal day on Earth. Remember, folks, it's your world. Go explore, and we'll see you next episode. 